0: The sermon I will be reading this afternoon is uh, from the uh, minister in uh, South Africa, Reverend Eric Van Elton. He is a minister at the Free Reformed Church in Pretoria, South Africa. The text he chose uh, for this afternoon's sermon is uh, from Psalm 45, which we read earlier. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we will be referring back and forth uh, to this chapter throughout the sermon. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, all of us probably know what it means to be very excited about something. Kids, maybe you are excited about a new toy that you have received or that one that you are about to receive. Maybe you are bursting with excitement about a new love in your life or about that long-awaited holiday. Maybe your faith in Jesus Christ really excites you. Whatever it may be, We all know that bubbly feeling of excitement. Your heart is overflowing. You are so full of it, you are almost bursting with excitement. Well, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the author of Psalm 45 is experiencing. The author is incredibly excited. Just here is excitement in the introduction to this Psalm in verse one. My heart is overflowing with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king, my tongue, is like the pen of a ready scribe. This man's emotions are completely in turmoil by the task that he has received, and rightly so, because he has received the great task of describing the wedding of the king. And if it was only the wedding of an earthly king, that would would have been great in itself, but this is about much more. This is about the heavenly wedding in which the divine bridegroom Jesus Christ takes his bride as his church. The author of this psalm can feel that this is about much more than a royal wedding. He is not treating a theme among many others, on which you can write a little poem. No, he is treating the theme among all themes. His poem is about the ultimate purpose of history, the story of all ages. King Jesus, who gathers his bride for eternal life. No wonder that the author becomes emotional. His heart is overflowing with words about the royal wedding of the divine king. And as a result, it is a wonderful song of love. Look at the introduction to the psalm, a wedding song like no other. And we today may sing along with the same emotion. We don't sing Psalm 45 as a meaning, meaningless Old Testament song, but we sing it as participants in the marriage between Christ and his church. We sing this song as one of the partners in the marriage. This is then the call of Psalm 45. Join in the wedding song for the king, because in the first place we will see, the bridegroom is unbelievably great, verses 2 through 9. The bride is unbelievably beautiful, verses 10 through 15. And in the third place, the future of this marriage is unbelievably rosy, verses 16 and 17. Now brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles and we'll refer back to verses two through nine. There we read, you are the most handsome of sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the hearts of your king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your king is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia and your ivory palaces string, from your ivory palace's stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Congregation, there is a certain movement in Psalm 45, and to understand this movement, we well, must first understand something of the marriage customs of biblical times. On the day of the wedding, It was custom that the friends and the following of the bride would gather at her house, where she would be preparing herself with the most beautiful clothing and jewelry. At the same time, the following of the groom would gather at his house. Now, when everything was ready, there would be a festive march. The groom and his following would march through the streets and go fetch the bride at her house. So they would move from his house to her house, after the groom met his bride, there would be there would follow a second march. The whole group, the groom, bride, their family and friends, would march back to the groom's house, and there a big wedding feast would be held, a feast that sometimes took a week, sometimes even two. Now, brothers and sisters, keep these different movements in mind as we deal with Psalm forty five. Let us now look at the first movement, the groom going to fetch his bride. In verses 3 through 10, we find the author's praise of the great king. It is as if the author is singing the praises of the king like a public announcer, all along the route which the king and his following are taking to the bride's house. On the first level, this is, of course, an indication of an earthly king. It is generally accepted that the king, or that the wedding of King Solomon with uh, the princess of Egypt is described here. But the praises of the author is as, is as of such a nature that we have to look further than the earthly king. There are, uh, there, things are said here that are only applicable to the heavenly king. So in the end, the description is about King Jesus. King Jesus is indeed the one who, according to verse 2, is the most excellent of men. Most excellent and most beautiful. No, not from the outside. Isaiah in chapter 53 of his prophecy does not say for nothing that the servant of the Lord has no form or comeliness, that he has no beauty, that we should desire him. From the outside, there was something special about our king. But he was most excellent because the Lord has blessed him with blessed lips, just a scene in verse two. Grace is poured upon your lips. Yes, King Jesus has blessed lips, meaning he speaks wonderful words which give life to people, therefore, his beauty is in his message, and the Bible clearly attests to that. Think of the time when Jesus was still on earth. He spoke with an authority and beauty which even amazed all his enemies, so much so. That when the Pharisees and scribes sent soldiers to arrest Jesus, they came back with this message. No one ever spoke like this man. John 7:46. In another instance, when the crowd started leaving him, Jesus asked his disciples whether they also wanted to leave. And then Peter answers on behalf of all of them. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John six sixty eight, 68. Jesus' words had the power to calm the storm, to drive out demons, to make people alive. And just as we read in John 4 last Sunday, where Jesus and a Samaritan woman were at the well, to bring men and women who were caught up in their own sin to life. With beautiful words, this bridegroom came to fetch his bride. But Jesus did even more with his words because this king also had to fight for his bride. King Jesus left his heavenly home and came to our earthly home to battle against the enemy, sin, and death. So when the author says in verse three, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, then he refers to the double-edged sword of his word. Verse five, where he refers to the arrows. They're the sharp arrows of his word that hit his enemies in the heart. And he does not fight a military battle. No, he fights for truth, for humility, and righteousness. Verse 4. This is the way in which Jesus triumphed over his enemies during his life on earth. From a physical point of view, Jesus' Jesus' enemies conquered him. They judged him and killed him. But in terms of truth, humility, and righteousness, Jesus won the battle. His throne is forever and ever, as seen in verse 6 and he continues to love righteousness and hate wickedness, as seen in verse seven. And because he conquered his enemies, therefore he can now marry the bride whom he earned during the battle, a bride born out of the word. With his beautiful words, his words of life, he won her love. And his death on the cross was like the dowry, the bride's price, that he paid for her even more The author uses images that suggest that Jesus' death almost became like his wedding garment. It is as if he clothed himself with death, so that his bride could see what he had done for her. Therefore, when the author of Psalm 45 says in verse 8, all your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, then what we understand is exactly what Nicodemus did with Jesus' body. He bombed it with a mix of myrrh and aloes. You can read this in John 19, 39. Jesus Jesus dressed himself with the clear signs of his suffering in order for the bride to see this is how much I love you. Brothers, Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful song of praise to the bridegroom. Not through power or violence, but through the spirit of his word. He came to conquer his enemies, to establish his throne forever, and to fetch his bride. Who does not want to be a partner in this marriage? Who would not want to be the king's bride? Everybody wants to be part of this occasion. As it says in verse nine, daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen and gold of Ophir. Everything and everyone is ready the king has arrived at the bride's house. Now it is time for the bride to make her, her appearance. And that brings us to our second point. The bride is unbelievably beautiful. So let's turn again to our Bibles, brothers and sisters. We'll look through ten uh, verses 10 through 15. Hear, O daughters, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Thus far. The king and his following has arrived at the bride's house. A huge moment for the bride. With joyful expectation, she is looking forward to his arrival, but there was also some tension. It is not easy to get married. It is a big step with a lot of consequences. But then the author comes in verses 10 through 15 with three beautiful pieces of advice. He starts by advising the bride to forget about the past. Verse 10, it says, Hear, O daughters, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. If you listen well, you hear in these words the same sort of calling that the Lord directed in Genesis 12, verse 1 to Abraham, where he says, Go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. These are, the word, these are strong and radical words. It may even seem like hard advice from the poet of Psalm 45. But for the bride to really belong to her husband, to be exclusively his, she has to leave these things behind. She cannot keep clinging to it. For the church, for every Christian to really belong to King Jesus, we must radically break from our former life. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is how strongly Luke put it in Luke 14, 26. By nature, we are attached to the beauty of friendships of this world. But we must forget about all this, because as Jesus says in Luke 9:23, if anyone would come to me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the radical separation which goes along with marriage to our king. This is the marriage for the church who really wants to be a bride. And the church who is willing to do this will find out that her bridegroom will more than make up for what she seemed to have lost. Life with him will make everything that previously seemed so important just disappear. To love Jesus Christ means to break from our former life. The old life cannot keep controlling our lives. You cannot keep clinging to the sins in your life. Do not move between two different lives, the former life and the life with your king. Do not allow that your relationship with Jesus is put in danger by you looking over your shoulder to what lies behind you. From now on, the heavenly king should be your only love. Only then will the bride really be shining in her beauty. The next piece of advice from the poet to the bride is therefore to only focus on the king and honor him. Just look at verse 11. The king will desire your beauty, since he is your lord, bow to him. This is something else than these immoral love stories we read in books and magazines and the things we see on TV. And this has nothing to do with an outdated view on marriage, where the husband is the master and a wife has to serve him. No, this is about a holy marriage in which the divine love of the groom for his bride and the humble reverence of the bride for her groom are kept intact. For the bridegroom loves his bride, he desires her, he cares for her like his own body. He lets her share in the goodness of God. And in response, she honors her husband and she worships him. The church has to worship Jesus Christ because he is our Lord and our husband. Congregation, this is the obedience that the heavenly bridegroom deserves. Because we have to remember we did not choose him as our husband. He chose us. He chose a bride who had no beauty in herself. Like Hosea, who chose Gomer, a prostitute, to be his bride, yes, that is what we were. We were that filthy. And to then be able to stand in the bride's room, preparing yourself, being beautiful, hearing how your husband is on his way because he wants you, what a miracle! Is he that? If he then desires you, bow before him because he is your lord. And then the last piece of advice from the poet to the bride is that he shows her to look forward to what the future holds for her as bride of the king. She will come to realize that her choice for this bridegroom was was definitely the right choice. She already sees the love that the king has for her in verse 11. The king will desire your beauty. She sees the honor that she will receive as seen in verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. And she sees the joy that is awaiting her, as shown in verse 15. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace to the king. What the church receives for answering to the Lord's love is unbelievable. Today, already, we receive new direction in our life because of the unity we have in Christ, Today, already we receive all the riches of his grace that he has earned. And how wonderful will it be at his return, a glory that nobody has ever seen before. Therefore, don't look back, but look forward, for the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming. When the bride has finished hearing these pieces of advice, she goes outside, determined without any more doubts to meet her waiting bridegroom. In all her splendor, in robes of many colors, she is brought to the king. Verse 14. This bride is unbelievably beautiful. And we know the beauty of a bride on her wedding day. Never on a Christian wedding day has there ever been a bride that did not look beautiful. The same applies to the church. When she leaves her old life behind and worships the Lord, her Lord and husband, then she is beautiful. No bride is more beautiful than the church of Christ. Is this how this congregation looks like? The call is very simple. Let us love our husband, Jesus Christ. Let us worship him the way he deserves to be worshipped. And let us leave everything else behind. And that brings us to our final point. The future of this marriage is unbelievably rosy. So verses 16 and 17, we read, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Bridegroom and bride are now together, and together they go on the way to the house of the bridegroom. But brothers and sisters, first they have to complete the route to the royal palace. First, they have to complete the journey. Yes, as bride, we are still on our way to that palace. A lot has to happen before the wedding feast can start. We can see in verse 16 where the poet again directs himself to the king. He pronounces a kind of blessing on the marriage. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. So, from the fertile love between bridegroom and bride, children will be born. Royal children will be the result of a relationship uh, between Jesus and his church, new members in the body of Christ. Every child born from believers is part of the bride of Christ. Christ makes them princes and princesses. But new members of the bride do not just come from the inside, but also from the outside. That is how it's supposed to be. That is why the author of Psalm 45 says in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The poet has the desire that the crowd that is on its way to the feast, that crowd will grow. That more and more people will be added from all nations to sing the glory of the king. Is this also the desire of uh, our desire congregation? Do we actively contribute so that the nations of the earth will praise God? Let it be our desire that the name of the Lord will be proclaimed across the whole world so that the crowd that is on its way to the heavenly palace may continually grow. It It is beautiful to think of our life as bride in this way. Jesus in front of us, and a huge crowd following behind him. A crowd that is ever growing through the proclamation of the gospel. All are looking forward to the feast that will be held at the bridegroom's house. In fact, it will be the king's palace. That is where we are headed. There, the wedding feast will be held for a week, maybe two weeks, not even close. It will be a week, or it'll be a feast that will never end and will never wane in joy and our intensity. Are we looking forward to that feast, brothers and sisters? Jesus first came to this earth to bind us, his bride, to him. But he will come for a second time to take us with him forever. Are we ready for his return? Let us grab onto our bridegroom. He is the only certainty we have on our journey through life. He is our only comfort in life and in death as we profess in Lord's Day One. Only together with him, we have a, a wonderful future. So congregation, therefore we pray, come Lord Jesus, fetch your bride. Come Lord Jesus, let the feast begin. Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen. Let us respond to the reading of his word by singing Hymn 52, all five stanzas.